plan was now set afoot for the burning of the Queen Charlotte, a British vessel then lined by the wharf at Amherstburg. To prevent distortion of features and to preserve her beauty to the last moment, it was determined not to administer this flammable dose by her head, but by her tail or stern. Everything preparatory to the Enterprise having been reported ready, the forlorn hope was paraded, and the general made a few observations to them, setting forth the dauntless courage of their commander and the important national advantages which must certainly result from the destruction of this Lady of the Lake. When having finished, Captain Langham put himself at the head of his party and moved off by the way of Lower Sandusky for Malden. Captain E. Wood, U.S. Corps of Engineers. Welcome to the foot of the rapids. When last we spoke, we were still huddled in winter quarters. Wet, cold, and hungry troops from Virginia had just arrived at the Maumee River, where land was being cleared, and an army camp was slowly being stockaded for defense in the forest. Strategically, the Americans had placed the British in a kind of check by advancing through an over-the-winter campaign to place a large force on the very nose of the front lines. The Crown forces holed up in Detroit and Amherstburg for the dark months, a mere 50-mile march by land and a quick 40 straight across the ice. As work on what would become the mighty Fort Meigs progressed and appeared healthy, General William Henry Harrison was anxious for any offensive action that could be taken, even a limited strike. By late February 1813, he had settled on a bold and perhaps unorthodox plan. As we heard described in the opening by Captain Wood, a crack team of hand-picked Americans would venture out on the dark and windswept ice, walk across Lake Erie, and strike the British where it might hurt most, destroy the ship Queen Charlotte, the crown of the armed sailing fleet, moored in the shadow of Fort Malden and locked, immobile, in cragged and stiff winter ice. This force, advancing from the direction that could least be defended. Captain Wood uses colorful military language to describe this body of troops, the forlorn hope, and it provides us an opportunity to dive into vocabulary of the times. The forlorn hope was by 1812 an older term already falling into disuse. It is based on the French Les Enfants Perdus, or the lost children. These are soldiers detached from various regiments or otherwise tasked to giving the opening onset of a battle or to be used in an attack on a breach in a besieged citadel. 
They are so-called the lost children because of the eminent danger they are exposed to, and therefore likely a high degree of casualty. A few short years later, writer Robert McAfee would describe the forlorn hope from Fort Meggs as those, quote, who were capable of any enterprise that valor and perseverance could effect, unquote. The Queen Charlotte was the largest and most heavily armed ship then serving on the Canadian side, just under a 300-ton vessel, and so she called Lake Erie her forever home. Designed and built at the Royal Navy shipyards at Amherstburg, just outside Fort Malden, by renowned and well-respected Canadian shipwright William Bell, the gentleman who would be responsible for nearly all the ships serving in this campaign, including the gunboats that shelled Fort Meggs later that spring. Queen Charlotte slid off the stocks and into the water in 1810. At nearly 100 feet, she was ship-rigged, meaning three masts bearing square sails. Sources on her exact armament vary greatly and it can be difficult to imagine her gun arrangement. But we can say she likely boasted 16 to 18 guns, mostly short-range 24-pound carronades, and belched a broadside of 192 pounds of metal, a devastating blast for the Great Lakes fleet. At the time of General Harrison's sneak attack in early 1813, the Queen would have still been captained by George B. Hall of the Canadian Provincial Marine, with a scant crew of a boatswain, ship's carpenter, and 25 sailors. American General Harrison, so close to enemy lines and in a wilderness loosely populated with American Indians of varying allegiance and French-descended citizens, was ever leery of spies, secrecy, and espionage. He kept the plans for the daring operation to himself. On February 17th, two spies from the River Raisin had already been apprehended by the American sentinels of the Pennsylvania line. But at breakfast on February 24th, Harrison entered the officer's tent of the artillery and informed Lieutenants Larwill and Madis that he thought them suited for an impending trans-ice offensive. They would need to be briefed. Major Amos Stoddard of the Artillery and Captain Wood of the Engineers were given orders to set about preparing incendiary explosives for the mission. But the camp and the men were not given any knowledge of the planned raid. Captain Angus L. Langham of the 19th U.S. Infantry was selected as the mission's overall commander. A former U.S. rifleman of Ohio, 
Langham had been recommissioned into the army just prior to the War of 1812 as a company commander of the 19th. The orchestrated plan called for a large body of men to proceed first to Lower Sandusky to acquire sleds from the detachment there, then head out over the lake to the Bass Islands, and then northward toward Fort Malden to Middle Sister Island. There, the assault would be timed to leave the island just before dark, so their arrival at the ship mooring would be just before daylight. At some point, the sleds would be left in the darkness, and the men's feet muffled in moccasins for an undetected final approach. Once on sight, Madis and a small company of French Canadians would board the vessel and fire the Queen Charlotte. The escape would be so swift, unburdened by the sleds, there could be no effective pursuit. Even so, General Harrison would march the independent battalion of Fort Meigs to the mouth of the Maumee River to intercept any retaliating foe. The propellant for firing a ship was based on the artillery's knowledge of the time. Major Stoddard likely based his fire weapons on what the army called carcasses or fireballs, though these devices were often intended to be lobbed from a mortar. The concoction would almost certainly be similar, and here would have to be carried on the backs of men. It was a fearsome cocktail of black pitch, turpentine, mutton suet, black powder, camphor, and fine, bright-burning tow. All this loaded into a large bag of buckram, a stiff and coarse cloth, or even sturdy brown paper, and corded very well. Sometimes often loaded with small grenades to help dispense the fire after it had already burned for a time. The morning of February 26th was a fine, bright, spring-like day. Perhaps not what you want for a mission dependent on ice. After morning parade here in camp, the forlorn hope was brought onto duty before the general, U.S. regulars and militia. Here, Harrison informed them they would not receive details of their advance until a future date but this would be a volunteer operation, and any man wishing to return would be granted that leave. If successful, their names would be presented to the national government with honors. He warned that the strictest discipline and silence would be demanded. They marched off under the leadership of Captain Moore of the Pennsylvania Militia. The officer corps remained behind, to receive final instructions. The fire charges were turned over to Lieutenant Maris, a gentleman and veteran of the French Navy. Wrapped in the American cause, he was well skilled in the artillery arts. They left later in the afternoon, marching eight miles from Fort Meigs. On the 27th, they made 25 full miles and slept under the stars on a wet, windy night, 
the men provided with watch coats or extra blankets for warmth. On the 28th, they arrived at the post of Lower Sandusky, and here the detachment gathered to full strength, 242 men, though some put the estimate a little lower, 68 regulars, 120 militia, 32 Canadians, and 22 Shawnee and Seneca warriors, together with sled drivers and trail guides, with six days' rations. Of all the surviving accounts of men that served at Fort Meigs, nearly all mention this mission, so it must have been of some weight and importance in their minds. But a single participant stands out. We rely on the journal of Lieutenant Joseph Larwill to narrate the remainder of our tale. Second March, 1813. All things being ready, we prepared to move, having got our provisions packed up. A march was ordered. About 10 a.m., slides moved down the hill. I, I marched in the front, the other companies following. When we got over the river, about half mile, a halt was called. Captain Langham then addressed the men, made the object of the expedition known, and those that had any objections to participate in the expedition. About 12 or 14 stayed behind at the encampment and six turned out here, not desirous of going, thinking the enterprise too dangerous. Also, five or six Indians. But Captain Langham made it known that the most strict and rigid discipline must be observed. We then marched. After traveling three and a half miles, we took the river on the ice, which was tolerable firm. We proceeded with rapidity, arriving in the bay. We passed down the bay, say, three or four miles. The water and ice was about one foot deep, considerable portion of the distance. We crossed at the bay of the Carrying River, where one of our sleighs broke in. It was taken out, as well as the horses. No loss, excepting a musket, which was on the slide. When we arrived near the lake, an Indian was discovered which caused several of the men to give him chase. The Indian slipped. We found him to be one of our party. Some of our men was being near shooting him in mistake. Walked out some distance on the lake, though we saw a body of men moving towards us. We afterwards found it was the reflecting rays of the sun on the ice that was thrown up in the ridges. We encamped behind the bank thrown up by the wash of the lake and on the south side was pond, or rather, slush land. All hands retired to rest. The nerves of the expedition seemed slowly to be coming unglued. Dangerous and uncertain work, to be sure. Twenty-five men had already turned back the very first day, for their own private reservations in the success of the stealth attack 
and concerns for their own bodily health. A scout mistaken for a spy, the men not recognizing the scout, the scout not recognizing the men, chase and near murder. A terrifying and otherworldly mirage was seen, the men's own reflection in the ice, the cause of jumping at one's own shadow. We can only imagine the short, wet-blowing days and the long, dark nights on the desolate and barren white lake, creaking and moaning beneath the unsteady, slushy feet. When a gun was fired by one of our men, we thought it was an alarm. Every man immediately was at his post, ready for action as soon as possible. The detachment was mortified that it was an accidental shot. Captain Langham was considerably in doubt whether he would not have the man that fired the gun shot for false alarm. As at this time, it became particularly necessary to use all precautions. I went to the Indians and stated to them that they must send out two parties to patrol and continue out for three or four hours. We now retired without any tents to cover us. The night was a very disagreeable one to pass over. It rained the forepart of the night, then snowed. In the morning, now March 3rd, 1813, we proceeded to move on the area of the Bass Islands, sometimes called Putin Bay on account of the harbor. Passing by an island on the left called Snake Island. It is a small one. During our progress to the island, the day was stormy, blowing, and snowing underfoot, quite slippery in places. We arrive at the northwest side of the island by 1 p.m., sent out a small party to the north to another island. They went about four miles, endeavoring to discover, if possible, any persons as on our way to this place, from the shore we discovered two sled tracks going in the direction of Fort Malden. This we presume to be Frenchmen that started the day we did from Sandusky. There they stated they was going to the river Huron, which was the contrary direction. We felt fully satisfied they was on to our designs and had gone to give the British our intentions. We encamped on Edwards Island after Captain Langham had been there and informed me the lake had broke up. I went and found the lake open about a quarter mile from shore, then walked to the north round the island, found that the ice on the north side was not of sufficient strength to bear a man and had the marks of being broke up as far as could see to the north, walked around the point. While at a ledge of rock, I heard distinctly that evening gun fired at Fort Meggs. The gun fired for evening was an 18-pounder. The distance in a direct line is about 55 miles. The wind was favorable to hear. Captain Langham inquired of the guides as to the practicability of our proceeding. They stated that it was impossible to go to Malden, that the river at Detroit was no doubt broke up, 
that there might be a possibility of us getting as far north as the middle sister island but as the residue to the Detroit River a distance of 18 miles mm, had to be performed after night they could not attempt going being fully satisfied that they could not arrive at the point of destination that should there be a southerly wind blow up the lake would immediately break up and might catch us on it or on one of the islands they stated they had gone as far as they thought either safe or prudent and would not take the responsibility on them any further. Captain Langen called all the officers and guides together. It was unanimously decided that it was improper for us to proceed and that we should retrograde our march immediately. Captain Langham was under strict orders from General Harrison not to endanger the men in foolish heroics, that if the guides had thought ill of proceeding at any point, they were to abort the mission and return to Fort Meigs. Somewhat anti-climatic end to what may have been a bold and daring operation. But it was already the month of March, late in the winter season, and the winter of 1812 to 1813 had seen a roller coaster of temperature fluctuations, instead of long, steady bouts of below freezing weather, which would have created a considerably sturdier base of lake ice. The American Indian guides in this matter were very correct in stating that the lake would be open at the mouth of the Detroit River. Even today, satellite imagery will show this is the first area of Lake Erie to break apart under the downward pressure of the upper lakes, casting moving water onto a relatively shallow basin of western Lake Erie. The danger of being isolated and trapped on a moving ice flow would have been a real and vexing concern for the hundreds of men involved in this expedition. Again, this still happens in the modern age, but rescue for this forlorn hope of 1813 would have been extremely difficult, if not impossible. This situation for these men would have been extremely scary, very real, and present in their thinking an operation. The following morning, March 4th, again a council of war was called to again review the opinions of aborting the mission. The morning still continuing unfavorable. The weather has changed in the night and become more cold, but was still quite sloppy. The captain then called the men and stated to them the opinion of the officers and guides and the importance of our expedition to the government should we succeed. At the same time, should our lives be lost in the lake in thus rendering this service to our country, that in that case it would be a loss considering this form was the prime of the army. He wished to get their opinion whether they was of the opinion of going on or returning. 
from all the statements made, they answered that they was willing and ready to go any place where the officers took them. It was now decided that we should return. The slaves was ordered to proceed. I had the van, crossed the point of the island and took on the backtrack until we arrived at a large seam in the ice, thrown up and occasioned by the breaking up of the ice to the northward. This is within three miles of the shore. Here the principal part of the guides and some of the sleighs kept on the route to Sandusky Blockhouse. From Locust Point we can see Cedar Point, distance 14 miles. It is a narrow strip of land, and we encamped this night 8 or 10 miles this side of the point. Had a very uncomfortable place to encamp. March 5, 1813. Make an early march. Reach the point. Start out across the point of land, the slides keeping round on the ice. When we arrived at the point, found the lake again open. If the day was clearer, we could see all the way to Malden. The distance in a direct line would be about 36 or 40 miles. We arrive at Presque Isle, which has some French settlements and we rest here a short time. When General Harrison and Sweet arrived in about a half an hour afterwards, some short delay was made, and General Harrison inquiring of the French that was with us as to the state of the dead at the River Raisin. We progressed up the river, the going on the western shore to encamp when one of the sleighs broke in the ice. I assisted getting it out, by the time the troops had already encamped, we supped and took a hearty drink of grog, the volunteers having brought some with them, our having run aground, and I can fully state that it was quite refreshing to me. And this night was cold and clear. March 6, being somewhat fatigued, I was induced to ride in a sleigh this morning to camp. Having arrived within three miles of Fort Meigs, the slide I was in broke through the ice with the horses, and I immediately shoved myself out on the ice and paid attention to the horses getting extricated from the difficulties they was in. They was got out by great exertions, but not without hurting them considerably. They must have been in the water struggling to get out nearly one hour. All this time I was in my stocking feet without my shoes, which had been in the sleigh and now in the deep. After the slide was out, I searched for my sword, but could not find it. Repaired to camp and arrived there by dinner time. As an Ohioan, it is extremely interesting to me to hear Lieutenant Larwill make notice of familiar places like Cedar Point and Putten Bay. And these references coming at a time when the land was still fairly unpopulated and settlement still in infancy. Presque Isle, where the forlorn hope met General Harrison, 
is a term we rarely hear used anymore in this area, but it denotes that bit of land where the Maumee River opens into Western Lake Erie, where the great coal docks of Toledo, Ohio are today. Off the top of my head, there are at least six places in the Great Lakes that bear that same title, so it can be an utterly confounding term. Thank you, early French explorers. Also, having our storyteller say that if the day had been clearer, one might have seen Fort Malden, and by extension, likely even the topmasts of the Queen Charlotte from their vantage point, ten miles from West Sister Island. It gives us an idea of just how close the two armies passed the winter that year, with the British and American headquarters at Malden and Meggs, only 40 miles apart across the frozen lake. And so, this bold winter strike against the Union Jack passed into history as what might have been. To return to the words of Eliezer Darby Wood, who opened this program, he said, quote, Thus did the coquettish queen disappoint an ardent and sincere lover, reserving her smiles and charms for the more fortunate and gallant Perry. Unquote. Indeed, the Queen Charlotte would sail heavily armed near the center of the British firing line on September the 10th at the pivotal Battle of Lake Erie. Here she became entangled with the flagship HMS Detroit and struck her colors, falling into American hands. After the glory of battle, she was limped to the shipyards at Erie, Pennsylvania, where at the close of the war she was scuttled in 1815. A decade later, she was resurrected with a number of other ships and purchased by a businessman from Rochester. She had her decks and hold converted for merchant duty and sold to a Mr. George Brown of Erie, who shortened her name to merely Charlotte. Once again, she skipped atop the waves of Lake Erie, mostly hauling timber, enjoying a long lake life stretching all the way to 1844 and her official retirement. Thank you for joining me today at the foot of the rapids.